and be right into Luke chapter 19. So we are really close to the end of Christ's ministry. If you are wanting to kind of know the time frame, I had said last time we were together, this is just the final weeks, maybe final month or two months of Christ's uh, ministry. It's hard to tell. The Bible doesn't tell us the details between him traveling here or traveling there. But we are really close to Christ entering Jerusalem for the last time and, of course, being crucified. So we're in Luke chapter 18, verse 35. It came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. So this blind man recognizes it's unusual that this many folks would come by at, at this time of the day. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth passeth by, and he cries, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now consider the the scenario that is being described. Sometimes it's so easy for us to just gloss over what the details are given to us in Scripture. This blind man is sitting on the side of the path, the road, the, the street, the sidewalk, whatever, however long this area was, why this area was. He's sitting on the side. He recognizes the commotion. He recognizes there's excitement. You can feel the excitement. He can hear the commotion. He can hear the people talking. He knows something's happening, and he cries out to someone and says, hey, hey, can you help me? What's going on? Someone says, oh, Jesus is here. Now, did that man say Jesus is right here? No. He said, Jesus is passing by. That does not mean that Jesus was right in front. So this blind man, not knowing where Jesus was, if he wanted Jesus to hear him, would have to do what? Shout out continually until Jesus responded. This blind man wasn't touching the hem of Christ's garment as the woman with the issue of blood was. This blind man did not come and find Jesus and say, will you heal my son, my daughter, myself? This blind man is blind, and he is hoping if I scream loud enough and long enough, Jesus will hear, because Jesus is passing by, and I just want to get his attention. I think that sometimes we are too polite in our efforts to get God's attention. You say, well, Pastor Russ, do you need to get God's attention? I mean, doesn't God know everything? Does, do, doesn't God know your problems? And won't God come to you without you crying out? Interesting point. We are, I'm reminded of the story of Christ walking on water. And we're told in different gospel accounts of parts of this story. One of the gospel accounts tells us that as Christ is walking by, it says he would have passed them by. But... The apostles cried out. Now, when the apostles cried out to Jesus as he's walking on the water, it's night, there's a storm, the apostles think they're going to die. We're told they thought he was a ghost. They're not even calling out to him as God. They're just calling out, who are you? What are you, apparition? (laughs) And Jesus stops, and that's when Peter gets out of the ship, walks on the water to Christ. Jesus stops because they called out, and they weren't even calling out to him as the Messiah. They were just calling out to who he was, and Jesus stops. But the gospel account tells us he would have passed by. Does that mean that God is just going to ignore you unless you get his attention? No. I'm not going to say that in all areas of life, in all areas of your spiritual condition, God ignores you until you harass him enough that he listens. But I will say this. There are obviously times where God is purposely seeking you out. There are times where God wants you to seek him out. And there are times where God passes by and watches to see what you will do. 
we see all three of those played out in the Gospels. Christ must needs go to Samaria to seek out the Samaritan woman. On more than one occasion, Christ isn't seeking, people are seeking him, and he accepts their seeking of them, of him. And on a few occasions, we see like this, Christ is coming by to be in the general area. It's up to them to take advantage of it. Now, we can't know which time is which at any time during the day. The safest thing you can do is cry out to Christ. Cry out to God. And don't be overly embarrassed about your crying out to God. I am unashamedly a Baptist. I have no problem being a Baptist. I have no desire to defend myself in the sense of uh, feeling like I have made a bad decision and need to defend my position. I am a Baptist not because I believe Baptists only go to heaven, not because I believe Baptists are only good Christians. I believe that the doctrine and theology that Baptists hold to are closest to Scripture, and therefore I am a Baptist. I think, though, that there are some things we Baptists need to recognize as weaknesses in our lives. One of them is our underwhelming worship. I recognized this years ago when I was a young man. I mean, I'm 39 in some eyes. I still am a young man. When I was a younger man, I recognized years ago that uh, I honestly remember sitting in a Baptist in a service at a church, and I was seriously asking myself this question, why are we even singing? Now, at the time, I was a, a youth pastor. I was in full-time ministry. I loved God, loved, loved God then, loved God now. I love God, worship God, live for God, dedicated my life to God, sitting in a Baptist worship service and saying, what's the point? Why are we here doing this? I would rather just come here, sit, listen to the message and go. Because the singing is doing nothing. <laughs> I recognized that the singing wasn't for me, but I was pretty confident the singing wasn't for God either. <laughs> I wasn't sure who the singing was for. I was under the impression that the singing was being done just so we felt good about ourselves because we, we expected that we should sing. I did not sense any sincere worship going on in that service. And as a young man, I experienced that a lot in a lot of worship services. As a pastor, I did not want that to continue. If I was going to be the leader of a church, I didn't want to be a leader of a church whose worship was dead, underwhelming at best. And I recognize there are other religions, other denominations that philosophically might do things that I would raise an eyebrow at. Theologically uh, might do things that I believe things that I would say, well, you know, it doesn't affect your salvation, but it definitely affects your Christian living and it will result in problems. But I'll tell you what, why is it that these other denominations and, and a lot of other religions, they seem to be very, very zealous in their worship of God? How come you can't have both? Why can't we both be theologically sound and zealous in our worship of the Lord? I think we can. I think we should. But it requires humility. Because to worship God loudly, to worship God sincerely, like King David did as he was coming back with the Ark of the Covenant. And as the, the trumpets are blowing and as the musicians are singing and playing their instruments and they're sacrificing an ox every so many feet, as David is coming into Jerusalem, he strips down to his inner clothing. He takes off his kingly robes. The Bible actually refers to David being naked. Not that he was naked in his bare skin, but for a king to be stripped down to his undertunic was nakedness. 
And so David stripped down to just the bare minimum, dancing in the streets, because David had humbled himself and had made this decision. Today isn't about my pride, my glory, my authority as king. Today is about God's glory, his authority. Let's have pride in him. Well, you know the story. Michael, his wife, from the safety of her window, judges David's worship. How dare you, David? How dare you belittle yourself in the eyes of the people? How dare you make yourself look bad and by nature indirectly make me look bad? I mean, come on, David. You got a family to think of. What was David's response to her? I'm going to paraphrase it for you. It was basically, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) It's about God today. And I'm going to do this for God. He actually curses his wife, not swears at her, but calls down a curse upon her for her attitude towards his humble worship. This man threw out all pride, and he just started screaming the name of Jesus. Do you think that maybe we're missing so many opportunities for Christ as he's coming by? For us to connect again with him because we're too prideful. It makes me chuckle now as I think about it. In fact, I was just considering this the other week as we were worshiping Sunday, and it did make me smile as I considered it. About five years ago, I had been the pastor for one year. About five years ago, I got together with my staff at that time. Pastor John wasn't here, Pastor Ethan wasn't here. It was a group of guys, different guys. And we were getting together, and we were talking about the worship service. And I was saying, I, I really desire that our worship service reflect God. And I said, you know, there's some people in our church that when they sing, they love to raise their hands. And I said, the problem is they don't raise their hands because most everyone else does not, including none of this pastoral staff, none of the, the life group leaders, the Bible study teachers, none of the pastoral staff. So basically all of those that, that the people are looking to, none of us raise our hands. Now, this is back when our church body in this congregation was about 40 people. So, you know, if the pastoral staff and their wives aren't raising their hands out of 40 people, it's very obvious, right? And I said, we've got a few that would love to raise their hand. They don't, though, because we're not. And I remember this question. I said, do you think it'd be okay if we raised our hands? And like, I'm looking, at 39, I'm thinking, what was I thinking? Why was I even asking that question? I should have just done it. But that was where I was at. That was where I was coming from. Where I had, to, I had to ask my pastoral staff and their wives saying, what do you guys think? Do you think that it would be okay if we raised our hands? We came to the conclusion, yes, it's okay to raise your hands. We, we talked about it theologically. We talked about it philosophically. We came to that conclusion, and we began raising our hands. It wasn't nearly as much as it is now after five years of doing it. It's a lot more comfortable. But I got to tell you, the first times I remember doing it, it's like, so I, do I raise my hand now, like on the hymn, the Amazing Grace? Or is it only the verses? Is it both hands? You know, is it halfway? I didn't know what I was doing. So I was trying to figure that out. But I did know this. I knew it was going to require humility because humility is always required when you do something new publicly. All right. It's one thing to do something new in, the, in your bedroom, in your car, to do it in front of a bunch of people when you've been doing a certain thing a certain way for so long requires humility. That I had. So I was good there. I said, all right, it's not about me. I don't want it to be about me. I just didn't know how it looked as far as the raising the hand part goes. I'm still trying to figure that out sometimes. But I think that this guy is the, is the essence of humility, and he's rewarded for it. Doesn't the Bible tell us? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and what will he do? 
lift you up. But he also warns about pride so many times in the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs mentions pride as one of the abominations, seven abominations. Pride is mentioned. He tells us in the New Testament that he will reject, he will push away from, he will walk away from those with pride. But he will embrace, he will lift up, he will honor those with humility. Bringing down those with pride, lifting up those with humility. If you, if you believe that there is something missing in your life spiritually, that God is not responding the way you desire or expect, could it be your pride is keeping you from calling out to God in an effective manner? All right, this man screaming the name of Christ, right? has says, have mercy on me. Verse 39, they went, which went before him, before who? Christ. So again, this guy doesn't know when Christ is coming. He just screams it over and over. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's annoying people. I mean, I was getting annoying saying it three times. Can you imagine over and over and over again in the crowds? People come by and say, stop it, man. You're not getting his attention. First of all, he's not even here yet. And you're annoying us. Stop it. What would most of us do? We stop. If you were worshiping Christ sincerely, loudly, openly, and someone rebuked you, you'd probably stop. If you were humbling yourself in a way that was already hard and someone called you out on it, you'd probably stop. Most of us would. Most of us do. Not this guy. But he cried so much the more. <laughs> Louder and more. <laughs> I don't know if he went faster. I don't know if there was space between the yells earlier. Verse 40, and Jesus stood. What does that mean? Stood before him. Finally, finally, Jesus comes by and stops. Jesus was going to pass by. People came first. The man didn't know when Jesus would be there. He just starts yelling. When Jesus gets within earshot, now again, Jesus is God. He already knew way before this guy yelled his name what he was going to do. But in his human form, when he gets within earshot, he stops and stands before the man. Commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him. What do you think he's going to ask him? Well, you know, you can see it in the Bible, but I have a question for you. Why would Christ ask The guy's been screaming his name. It's obvious to anyone in the crowd what the man wants. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Does anyone think this man wants money from Christ? He wants him to drop some coins in his cup, his bowl, in his hand? No, it's obvious the man wants to be healed. Why is Christ asking? What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? The man does not respond in a manner of pride or in a manner of astonishment. What do you mean, what do I want? You know what I want. No, the man, remember, he's a humble man. And his humility continues, even when the question of Christ might in others spur on a moment of pride, spur on a moment of, what do you talk, what do you mean, what do I want? He says, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus answers, said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. Saved thee from what? Saved thee from blindness? It could be that 
Christ is referring to salvation from blindness. I don't think that's the case. I think Christ is talking about salvation spiritual here. This man trusted in Christ to heal him from his blindness because this man trusted that Christ was the Messiah. So Christ has said, you know what? Not only will I heal you because I am the Messiah, but because you trust me as the Messiah, you're also going to be saved. You get a two-for-one deal today. Now, again, back to my question, why did Christ ask? If Christ had just walked by and healed the man and not even stopped, could it be that some would say, oh, what a, what a crazy thing to happen? What are the odds of that? This man would be healed right when Christ walked by. Oh, Christ did it. Oh, but did he really do it? I mean, are you sure about that? I mean, maybe it just happened to be things aligned at the right time, and this man finally saw I think that Christ wants to make it very clear he's the one that's healing the guy, both for the guy's sake and for the crowd's sake. But also, Christ, I believe, I can't know the heart or mind of God. And I've said before, God doesn't heal the same way every time. It it seems to be often, very often, uniquely different in the way that God deals with people. And I love that about God. If you say, why doesn't God deal with me the same way he deals with someone else? Is because God likes to deal with you uniquely different. I mean, for a God who created stars and named them all different names, and we have no clue how many stars are in the universe, for a God that every, that every time a snowflake drops is uniquely different, do you think that God, that same God who is so creative, so massive in his wisdom and his ability and his knowledge, do you think that God is going to treat every human the same way? You don't know our God. You don't know your God if you think that he is so limited in his knowledge and mind that he'll treat us all the same. He will love us all the same, but he treats us as unique individuals, even in the manner in which he responds to our prayers, our requests. He's healed people by speaking. He's healed people by touching their eyes. He's healed people by making mud with, with spit and dirt and rubbing it on their eyes, blind men. He's, he's healed in a variety of ways. Here, he just speaks it again. This is another opportunity where he just speaks it. But this time, he said, what do you want? That has happened before. Sometimes he asks, what do you want? Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he does it without them even in any way referencing Christ as the Messiah. I believe for this particular individual, Christ wanted the man to know that it was Christ, and Christ wanted the man's humility displayed, and Christ wanted to reward the man's humility. This man humbly says, I want my eyesight, and Christ graciously offers it. I have said that when it comes to relationships, If you had to choose between love and humility, I strongly suggest you choose humility. You say, whoa, 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 Pastor Russ. Love is the first and greatest commandment. Yes, it is. But those who love in pride aren't really loving as God intends. And here's the problem with loving in pride. Those who love in pride say, aha, 
I am a great Christian because I accomplished the first commandment so well. (laughs) And I accomplished the second commandment perfectly. And I have done everything God asks of me. Nothing else needs to be done because in pride, they believe that their form of prideful love is what God asks. And it's not. But they won't accept that fact because they're prideful. And their love is tainted with pride. And their love does more damage because they won't change it because they think it's exactly what people need, and it's not. You say, well, how does humility help people if there's no love attached? Here's the thing about humility. If your relationship includes humility, love will eventually follow. And then love will attach itself to what is already there, a humble heart. Humility will take you further in a relationship with God and others, and love will follow. But if you start with love and not humility, if you start with love, prideful love, it is very difficult to attach humility to that later. Not that it can't be done. I don't see it nearly as often as the other way around. Someone who is a humble person, I find, easily falls in love. Not romantically, like they just... They fall into compassion for others easily. But they don't necessarily walk into that relationship having loved that person. They don't know that person. They walk into the relationship with humility, and then love quickly follows. As a Christian, if you can embrace humility, godly love will attach itself to you. And then you will reflect the love as God desires us to towards others. This man's rewarded for his humility. Let's look on now to the next chapter, verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a certain man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. So this man was not only a tax collector, he was, a, he was higher up. He was a supervisor, a manager. He was someone the other tax collectors answered to. So he probably took his cut not only from the taxes, but from the cuts of the taxes of the other publicans. This, this guy was raking it in from various angles. All right, he's a con man. People knew it. He didn't care because he had the authority and protection of the Roman government behind him. So he was a thief, openly living the dream. He sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press because he was of little stature. So we often focus on the little stature of Zacchaeus. Not going to do that tonight. There's really no need. I know it's a cute story for little kids and talk about him climbing the sycamore tree. I mean, we'll get into that briefly, but I'm not here to discuss the stature of this guy. What I want to discuss, again, is something we just saw previously, is the humility of this guy. I don't know that Zacchaeus walked into this day with humility? How could you steal from people on a regular basis and be a humble man? I don't know that that could be feasible. But we do see the way in which response is humbly. But let's see what happens. So this man, he recognizes Christ is in Jericho, and he seeks Jesus out. There's a danger as Christians when we assume that everyone is going to seek Jesus out like Zacchaeus, like Nicodemus that everyone's going to come looking for Christ. And if we just make sure the doors are unlocked in our lobby, and if we make sure that there is preaching and singing going on, people will come rushing into the church building to seek Jesus. 
And then we wonder when they don't, and we wonder what's going on, what's wrong, what have we done wrong where people aren't coming in to see Jesus. That does happen. People have come into this building. People have come into other church buildings, and they do so every weekend throughout the year, throughout the world, in a variety of church buildings. People are seeking Jesus, and you do want to make yourself available to them when they do seek Jesus. You know, it's interesting to me how much Christians talk about wanting to reach the lost, and when someone actually comes looking, seeking Christ, they're given the cold shoulder. They, they are given not even the time of day. If you do have a conversation with them, it is about the weather, it is brief, it is awkward, and you move on. When people are looking to seek Jesus, those should be the ones we should really invest time in. They've made the effort to show up when no one invited them. Why would we waste that opportunity? So this man, looking for Jesus, and Jesus doesn't waste the opportunity. Now, why is it that this man couldn't push through the cow? Well, he's small of stature, right? He couldn't get through. Well, we find that children get through the crowd quite often, and the disciples actually say, get out of here, you little scamps. You know, Christ doesn't have time for you. So it's not that small people can't get through the crowd. There's something else going on here. This guy wasn't allowed through the crowd. By who? The followers of Christ. This man is seeking Jesus, and the followers say, you don't deserve to seek Jesus. You're not getting by me. Come on. You're in a car. You're waiting to get on or off the interstate, and there's a long line, and someone didn't wait their turn. They take the left lane, and they try to get in, and you scoot up a little bit, and you say, not today, Satan. No, get back in the line, right? You don't want someone taking your place. Well, that's what's happening here. Except I think it was more than just, no, you can't have my spot. I think when they saw who this guy was, they said, oh, you definitely can't have my spot. You definitely can't get in. We've been waiting. We're in line. We're in a crowd. Uh, Could you push through? Sure, people have. People do. But we're not letting you. The shoulders pressed just a little tighter together when Zacchaeus came by. This guy was public enemy number one. He was the chief of publicans. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the tax collector of Jericho. Fairly large city. I get the human condition. I understand our biases. I understand the things that cause us to be offended and angry. The reasons that bring us to this point of anger sometimes are justified. This guy's a thief, she's a liar, he's a hypocrite. You can't trust her. I understand the reason for our biases, but consider this. When your bias keeps people from seeing Christ, there is no justification for that, ever. You don't have to like someone for them to see Christ. You don't have to uh, trust someone for them to be saved. Imagine the regret if we were to discover for eternity that someone went to hell because we had a bias. Because we didn't want them to see Christ. Because we saw something about them that bothered us, and therefore we did not embrace them into the arms of Christ. I, I don't want that kind of regret. Now, is there regret in heaven? I don't know. 
I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure that regret is a sin. I think regret is a, oh, man, I could have done better. I mean, can we have that emotion in heaven? Possibly so. And if we can, I don't want it. I want to know continually at peace that I did not get in the way of anyone meeting Christ. A lot of people, not one, a lot of people got in the way. Now, fortunately for Zacchaeus, he wasn't going to let anyone stop him. So, of course, he climbs a tree, right? Verse 4, climbs a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Now, here's where the humility kicks in. This is a chief man. This guy, first of all, to climb the tree would have been humiliating. This is not a small matter that a, an important official climbed the tree. Now, maybe he's just so stinking rich he doesn't care what people think. That's a possibility. Maybe he was so intrigued by Jesus he, for a time, forgot about his own status in society. Possibility. Maybe he put aside his pride to see what the ruckus was about Christ. Regardless of what happened getting up the tree, him making haste coming down the tree, that was definitely a sign of humility. First of all, Jesus isn't a public official. Jesus is not someone of high importance politically. Those are the kind of people that Zacchaeus rubbed shoulders with, right? Not prophets, not standard Jews. They hated this guy. He didn't have friends like that. Jesus was not the kind of guy Zacchaeus had to his house or quickly jumped out of a tree to and ran to. Jesus wasn't that kind of guy. But something about Jesus when he met him, when Zacchaeus saw him, something about him spurred Zacchaeus on to recognizing, wow, forget what people have to say. I'm jumping out of this tree, and I'm running to this guy. What a great response to meeting Christ. Jumping out of the tree and running to him. So when he joins Christ, he receives him joyfully. That's Zacchaeus receiving Christ joyfully. When they saw it, they all murmured, right? These are the guys that held him back. Wait a second. Wasn't our job to keep this guy from Jesus? Now he's going to meet him anyways, and now Jesus is going to spend some time with him? Like, that's not fair. This is the worst guy in the city. Why is Jesus spending time with the worst guy in the city? Why? Because Jesus didn't come to save those that are healed but the sick. Jesus came to seek the lost, of which there are many. Christ doesn't need to connect with those who don't think they, need a, they don't need a physician. Christ said, all right, if you don't think you need me, I'll go to some who do think they need me. Zacchaeus was definitely one of them. Zacchaeus stood and said unto him, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I gave to the poor, and if I have taken anything from man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. If, of course you have Zacchaeus, come on, man, <laughs> just tell it like it is. I think what he's saying is, for those that I have taken, I will give back. I, be, I guess he's saying, look, Christ, I haven't stolen from everyone, okay? Not everyone has been robbed by me, but the ones that have been, I'll return back to them. Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. I love that response. Salvation didn't come to this man's house because he gave back his money. No, this man gave back his money because obviously in meeting Christ, he responded in faith. And because he responded in faith, Christ says your household has received salvation in faith. But look at this next statement. He also is a son 
of Abraham. You know what we find, I think I find in my life as I meet people, I think it is so easy for us to lose sight of the human soul. We see the body, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We see the hurt in the eyes. We see the choices people make. What we fail to see is the soul. We forget that to everybody there is a soul attached. And not just a soul, but an eternal soul. We forget that uh, these eternal souls can get either a little closer or a little further away from Christ through every interaction with us. That we, through our testimony, are either drawing them a little closer or pushing them a little further. Now, ultimately, it is their choice. Zacchaeus proves that. He was pushed out. He jumped on a tree to find Christ. So, ultimately, we are all responsible for our rejection or connection with Christ. But I don't want to be responsible for someone else walking away. Christ reminds the crowd. He says, this guy is a Jew too. Now, he's using the son of Abraham because he's talking to Jews about uh, something that was very important to them, their lineage. And Christ was saying, what's important to you? This guy's also God. He's got the same lineage you do, right? He is a human. You know, the Jews often saw those who weren't Jews as something different. I'm not saying they saw them as less or human. They definitely saw them as different human. There was most assuredly racism running rampant in Judaism. It was also running rampant among the Gentiles. Unfortunately, this time, racism was par for the course for everyone. But for a Jew, if you weren't a Jew, then you weren't a Jew. And they had a problem with that. And Christ says, he's a Jew too. Now, you say, well, I'm not racist. I treat all humans equally bad. <laughs> okay, that's not much better. <laughs> They're a person too. They have a human soul. It's eternal. And what is your connection with them accomplishing? Good or bad? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I love the heart of Christ in so many ways. How can you not love the heart of Christ when he just opens it up for you and lets you see? If you don't know Christ, it's because you're not looking. If you don't understand the motivation of Christ, it's because you don't pay attention. Christ has made it so clear to us who he is and what he's trying to accomplish. How can we not see it? He says, I am here to look for guys like this. This guy right here, Zacchaeus. How many churches are willing to seek out the Zacchaeus? They come with their problems. Right? Not all the stories end as cleanly as this one. They, Zacchaeus meets Christ, and within the same day, a conversion experience that results in major changes. Sometimes it's a lot um, messier. The conversion experience isn't so profound. The changes aren't so immediate or so powerful. And sometimes the Zacchaeuses continue to steal and do so now within the circle of trust you've embraced them in. Sometimes the Zacchaeuses have a conversion experience but struggle and go back to some form of their messy life. We as Christians like the idea of Zacchaeus. We don't do so well at actually meeting Zacchaeus. 
We don't do so good at actually drawing in Zacchaeus. We just like the idea of Zacchaeus. And liking the idea is most definitely not the same as accomplishing the goal. How was it that Christ could deal with so many messy people? How was it that Christ could bring some of these messy people into his inner circle? The 12 apostles, one of them was going to betray him. If that's not messy, I don't know what is. Look at Peter. Peter's constantly causing a mess, but so are the others. James and John trying to wiggle their way into Christ's good favor above everyone else, using their own mother to do so. Other apostles doubting Christ. Well, you fed the 5,000, but you can't feed the 4,000. Well, you're walking on water, but we can't walk on water. Well, there's a storm and we're all going to die. I mean, they were a mess. How is it that Christ could surround himself with so many messy people? Well, the question can be asked today. How is it that God could surround himself with such a messy church? You show me a church that's not messy, and I'll show you a lie. I'll show you a church living a lie. That they are portraying themselves as a certain way on Sunday so that everyone can feel good about everyone else because we want to ignore the mess. You ever had laundry and you just threw a blanket over it? It's a throw pillow, really. No, it's not. It's not a throw pillow. Right? The mess is still there. You just pretend that it's not. Open your eyes. Dig just, just lift up the blanket and you'll see the mess, okay? Scratch the surface, you'll see the mess. But no, there's a lot of churches that have chosen to leave the blanket there that do not allow anyone to scratch the surface and that claim there's no mess here. We all have a mess in our lives and therefore churches are messy. Some more than others. Obviously, there are choices that can make, that can and should be made to limit the mess, to limit the impact of the mess, to limit the extreme consequences of the mess, obviously. But like a home with children, and I've got five of them, you can clean the front room. 20 minutes later, it's a mess again. Some of you are saying, Pastor Russ, I don't have any children, and that's a problem at our house. I feel for you. I get it. Washing the dishes you got to eat. Therefore, there will always be dishes to wash. So, what's worse? A church that pretends there's no mess or a church that has a mess and deals with it? Obviously, a church that pretends there's no mess because that mess just keeps growing and growing and growing and you have to get a bigger blanket. And eventually, there's no room on the couch left. You just got blankets over everything. All churches have a mess. The question is, do we constantly clean house? When I say clean house, I don't mean throw the people out with the mess. The building would be empty. I mean, are we addressing the mess? Address the mess. Give people the opportunity, the freedom to address the mess. When you throw a blanket over it, the one with the messy life thinks I'm the only one. I can't go forward. I can't ask for prayer. I'm the only one. I wouldn't do that. When the church recognizes we all have a mess, let's help each other. Let's address the mess. Then those who have it can get it constantly cleaned. Oh, yeah, for sure. They'll be messy again tomorrow. They'll be messy again next week because that is the nature of the human condition. We're a mess. But when we keep cleaning it, it doesn't get overwhelming. It is sustainable, you might say. The mess is sustainable. You can still thrive 
with the mess because the mess doesn't cloud or crowd your house. You can still live in the house if you constantly maintain it. I want to be that kind of church. I want to be that kind of church body, recognizing there's a mess, but constantly addressing it so it does not overwhelm us. But I do not want to ever be the church that pretends there's no mess. So how can you do that? Humility again. Humility is the word of the day. If we are humble enough to recognize we're a mess, we can be humble enough to accept the mess of others. And then ask for the wisdom of God on how to clean up the mess, knowing there will be another mess next time we're together. How does God allow himself to be surrounded with such a mess? Overwhelming love. God's love far outweighs any emotion he might feel regarding our mess. Let me tell you, God feels emotions regarding our mess. We're told God has wrath towards our sin. God sorrows and grieves towards our sin, our mess. So don't tell me God is emotionless towards our sin. He definitely has emotional responses to our mess. But the strongest one is love. And so for that reason, he is able to deal with our mess in the best way possible as God. And we need to reflect that kind of attitude. If you want to help someone who's messy, your love for them needs to be stronger than any other emotion you feel towards their mess. We're going to end there. JD, you guys can uh, stop the video, and we're going to take some time to chat about what we discussed tonight with those in the sanctuary. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you next Sunday. Next Wednesday. Thank you.